0: One of the fun things that I enjoy doing uh, with my girls along with Hannah is that we'll often take time to play uh, games together. I'm not a huge board game person, but, it, you know, to engage your, your children, have fun as a family, and be competitive, we play games together. And there's this one game that we've been able to play with the girls since they were little. It's pretty easy, and this is a, uh, this is kind of the advanced version uh, of it. It's got a question mark on the front. It's the game, Guess Who? Have you ever played the game, Guess Who? Uh, If you haven't, I'm going to explain it to you because it's super, super easy. Uh, When you play the game, guess who? Only two people can play at a time. But the way that the game works is this. Each uh, opponent has here on their board a a series of of faces with names. And before the game starts, you select the person that your opponent is going to have to attempt to guess. Okay? Okay. And so then on one side, I have, I have my person that you're trying to guess, and on your side, you have the person you're trying to guess. And the way that you're able to figure out who your opponent has is by asking them questions that help build in your mind a description of the individual, because then you're looking on your side, and you're saying, oh, let me, let me see like things like this. Uh, does your person have blonde hair? And if the person says, no, my person doesn't have blonde hair, then you're like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going I'm to close the pictures here, the people with the blonde hair. You know, is your person a man? You know, oh, no, it's not a man. Okay, now I'm going to close all the, the men. Does your person have brown eyes? And you close that. And so as you play the game, you're trying to build out the description of your opponent's character. And ultimately, you win when you are able to accurately guess your opponent's person. It's a really really simple game, and it's called Guess Who? Because you're trying to build out in your mind who is it, and you're able to figure out who it is by the description that you build out. Now, it's an easy game, and and you win by knowing the description of your opponent's character. But what we're doing here as a church right now in these first few weeks of the fall is we're doing a series of messages that's kind of like a, a Guess Who? But what we're doing as a church is we're coming and we believe as a church that we have a very simple mission and purpose. That God's people, the church exists for this very simple reason. We exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that there is a God who exists, and when we say we exist to glorify him, it means that you and I exist to center our lives on him, to live to make much of him. I said last week that we are telescopes, we're not microscopes. We, we exist to, to make this great God, who is sometimes unknown, to make him uh, amazing and awesome because he is exactly those things. And when I talk about our lives being centered on him, we're like, because of who he is, because of what he's done, he's the only God who's worthy of worship. And and the reason why I mentioned the game Guess Who is because what we're doing as a church in these first few weeks is we're just considering who is this God that we glorify? Because we believe that if you truly know him, if you're able to capture in your mind, even to the smallest degree, who God really is and what he has done for us, well, then it makes all the sense in the world why we exist to glorify him why it is that we gather for worship, why it is that we take time to grow, to know more of Jesus and to look like him, why it is that we give of our time, our talents and treasures in service to God, why we ultimately go and tell the world about him. You see, this game, guess who? You win it by being able to ultimately have the right description in your mind of the person that your opponent has. But for us, To truly know God for who he is, well, that's where the peace is. That's where the joy is. That's where the hope of our lives is. In fact, we agree with J.I. Packer when he said this. I shared this quote with you, but I want us to see it again this week. He kind of summed this idea up of the importance of really knowing God when he said, the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. You disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and you can lose your soul. To truly know God for who he is, it doesn't win you a game. (laughs) No, no, no. J.I. Packer says, the, the, the Bible says, to truly know God for who he is, that's where you find life. That's where you find meaning. That's where you find your purpose. To to not know him, you wander around aimlessly, and the world becomes a strange and mad place. And so what we're doing is we're exploring who is the God that we glorify? Do we really, truly know him? And last week, we started building out our understanding of who our God is by going to the very first pages of God's word. We went to Genesis 1-1, where we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the what? earth. It's it's that very famous Bible verse. The very first way that God reveals himself to us, if you want to know who God is, is as the creator of everyone and everything. That's the God that we glorify. Whoever you and I understand him to be, he first says, you have to know me as your creator, that nothing came into existence apart from me. I love when the psalmist wrote it. He said, Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth, therefore, fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. We say that when you know God for who he is, you glorify him, you live for him. The psalmist says the exact same thing. If you understand that God is the creator, you stand in awe, you stand in fear. That doesn't just simply mean that you're afraid. It means that you understand the fullness of who he is. I use the illustration of of fire. Like there's times when you can be afraid of fire and it's right and good to be afraid of fire, but then there's time that you love fire because it provides light and warmth and heat. When you take God in the fullness of who he is, part of that being the creator, you stand in awe. You see, because if he's the creator, we learned last week it means that no one and nothing compares to him. Because everything else is a created thing and he's the creator, then that doesn't mean if it's your job or a person or a hobby or whatever it might be. You can't center your life on those things. You can't build your life from those things. You can't find your security and your hope and your f- perfect peace and rest in those things. Why? Because they're just created things. Nothing compares him. Nothing can come before him. (laughs) That's what it means for him to be creator. But it also means that as the creator, we belong to him. You know, we say, you know, oh, that's my house. That's my car. This is my job. Those are my tools. This is my, my, my. In reality, we, along with everything else, is his. We're stewards. We're not owners because he's the king over all things. For him to be the creator means that he's the author. For him to be the author means that he has the authority. And so all authority, David said when he was praying a blessing at the dedication of the construction of the temple, he said he has all authority, all power, all glory belongs to to him. This is who our God is. Now that in and of itself should cause us just to stand back and say, I mean, yeah, if this is who he is, then it makes sense that we belong to him. It makes sense that when I live for something other than him, I'm not going to find joy. I'm not going to find peace. I'm not going to find rest. When I function as though I actually own something when it's not mine, I'm going to be stressed out about it. When I act as the ruler over my own life rather than submitting to his reign and rule, there's not going to be peace there. And so I challenged this last week. I said, I said do, we, do we understand him in this way? Do we see him truly in the fullness of what it means for him to be creator? And then, then do we ultimately look to live that out but it's not the only way that god reveals himself yes he comes to us and he says i am the creator of everyone and everything but today we're going to consider Another passage, it's probably one of the most famous passages, at least for Christians in the Bible, one of the most well-known passages. We looked at Genesis 1-1. Today, we're going to look at the scripture that was read at the very start. We're going to say, God, who do you reveal to us about who you are and what you've done in John 3:16, John 3 one of the most famous passages... We're going to look at it, but here's what I want us to first consider. Do you guys know the context for John 3.16? Do you understand that John 3.16, Jesus is speaking to a man by the name of Nicodemus. Now, who is Nicodemus? He was a religious leader in Jesus' day. He was actually the the great teacher of Israel. He was the one who tried to make God's law and God's word um, known to the people at that day. And as Jesus rolls up on the scene in Galilee, he's making quite the splash, and Nicodemus is like, who is this guy? people are following him. They're listening to his teaching. He's performing miracles. And so he asks for an audience with Jesus, but he asks that they do it at night. If you know the story, he says, Jesus, I want to meet with you, but let's do it in the evening because he didn't want to be seen with Jesus because some people didn't think very highly of him. So he meets with Jesus at night, and he basically says, who are you? What are you about? Like, who am I to take you to be? And Jesus, very gently and through a series of questions, begins to answer Nicodemus, culminating in many ways with this verse that we're going to look at again. Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, says these words, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, he's not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. He says, you want to know who I am and what I'm about? Well, here it is. Here it is. Are you guys familiar with that passage? Have you heard some of it before? We usually stop at verse 17 and, and even verse 18 we don't get into all that often. But it's here that Jesus comes to Nicodemus and he reveals some very important and significant things to us if we're trying to understand who our God is. But before we consider what he tells us about God, did you see what he says about all of us? Like, I know your name isn't in this verse exactly, but he addresses all of us in this room. He actually speaks about humanity here in this passage. And he says something that doesn't necessarily win friends and influence people. What he says about us, before we look at what he says about God, is he says, We need saving. We need saving. Humanity needs saving. Nicodemus, if you're going to understand me, if you're going to understand God, if you're going to understand why I'm here, you need to understand that humanity needs saving. He says it right there in verse 17. He says he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be what? Saved through him. Jesus isn't coming because the world doesn't need saving. He's saying Jesus is coming because the world does need saving. And the extent of the salvation that we need is mentioned in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not, what's the word? Perish. perish. Well, we don't throw around the word perish all that often. But Jesus says humanity needs saving because humanity is perishing. The Greek word is, is, is apolumi, which means basically being destroyed unto death. If someone's being described in that way, what would you say they need? (laughs) If you're being destroyed unto death, you need saving. And so he says, this is the human condition. This is the place that the world finds itself in. We need saving. We need saving because we are perishing unto death. Now, how did we get here? Why why are we perishing? If you were here last week, and if you were listening to the first part of the message, you'll know why. We saw last week that God is the creator of everyone and everything. He's the king over us all. And as the king, as I said, He is the creator, but he's also the author. He has all the authority. And God set forth first for Adam and Eve, and then for all humanity. He said, blessings are found. Life, the way it should be lived, is found, as long as you obey me. Follow me, center your life on me, walk in my ways, and you'll find life. But the day that you disobey, you will surely what? Do you remember what he says? You'll die. Death enters in. There is consequence for disobedience. As the king, I've set forth that I judge and I punish those who disobey me. That's why Jesus says the world is condemned. Jesus didn't come in to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. Meaning that we have already been found guilty and under a punishment for our crime. And the crime that we've committed is very simply this. We are guilty of rebellion against God and are under his judgment and wrath. This is why humanity finds itself perishing. Jesus doesn't get into all the details of this with Nicodemus, but this is what is said all throughout the rest of the scriptures. We've turned away from God Death exists as punishment for our rebellion against God. Last week's verse was Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, that is, the wrath of God is revealed from God <laughs> against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, who, who reject God for who he is. All of us have done it. All of us have failed to, to live up according to God's standards. And so this is why we're perishing. This is why we need saving. Jesus says we stand condemned. But wait, it gets even better. (laughs) It's not just that we need saving, it's that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. The condition we find ourselves in, the fact that we are literally being destroyed unto death, it's talked about throughout the scriptures as, as something that is impossible for us to take care of on our own. There's this passage in Proverbs 5.22. It describes it this way. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. We're bound. Galatians 4.8 says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature, are not gods. We are enslaved. Uh, Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead. Listen, uh, the situation humanity finds itself in is not just that we need saving, but it's that we can't save ourselves. It was a number of years ago, probably about three, I was at the beach with Hannah and the girls. It was just enjoying a wonderful day out in the ocean, having lots of fun together. We were in Carlsbad at the time. And as we were out there in the ocean enjoying ourselves, all of a sudden a rip current came in with a set of waves. Something that we weren't necessarily expecting or that we saw coming. We were out there in the water with a number of other people. And I have to say, church, it was probably one of the most scariest experiences I ever had in the ocean. I'm used to being in in the ocean and swimming in it and being in it with, with the girls But it came on so unexpectedly, Hannah and I are out there with the girls. My youngest, Claire, was probably about eight at at the time. And I quickly realized something. It was going to be a struggle for me to get in with the rip current. And if it was going to be a struggle for me, I knew that there was no chance of Claire getting in by, by herself. And that even for Hannah and the girls, unless something happened, we were in a situation where, Perishing was a reality, and those around us in the waters sensed the the same thing. And, and in that moment, I realized I got to intercede, and so I I took. Cece, who was next to me, and I literally kind of like picked her, picked her up. I was kicking with feet and just kind of threw her forward. And, and Hannah starts swimming, and she's kind of pushing the girls. We kind of kept them in front of us. We just kept pushing, 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 pushing. And we finally made it to shore. As we were going in, the, the lifeguards were literally going out looking to rescue the people because the rip current was so strong, it didn't matter who you were. You were going to be pulled out there. When I thought about Cece and what was happening with her, I, I thought, if I'm not there with her, She's perishing. She's not going to be saved because she can't do it on her own. And when Jesus comes and he says, the world is perishing, this is the description that he's giving. You not only need saving, but you can't do it yourself. When I come to a passage like this and I remember what would have been the inability of my daughter to save herself in, in that moment, it puts a reality check on me. That Jesus says, because of our sin, we're under the wrath of God and we're under his judgment. And there's nothing that you or I can do. We're enslaved. We can't pay off the debt that we owe. We're dead, so we can't choose to come back to life. We're alienated, so so we can't come in. We're not we're no longer invited. We're we're person on grata. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Do you understand what's going on here in the world? The world needs saving, we need saving, and we cannot save ourselves. Now, while those truths are not necessarily the most fun thing to talk about and to reflect upon, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is something that you probably know, but I I want us to stop for a moment and consider what this actually means. Before we consider who God is, think about by knowing these truths, what it should do to us. The first thing I want us to recognize is that, listen, The Bible, while it says that we need saving, and while we cannot save ourselves, it doesn't say that your life is worthless and meaningless. I want us to be clear on that, okay? Because one of the things we can do is you're like, well, Dave, you're saying that, you know, we can't save ourselves, and we need saving, and so therefore, humanity as a whole is a lost cause. You know what? They just got to deal with the consequence of, of their sin may we never be a people and may we never be a church that just because we know that God's word says that we are weak and we're dead and we're alienated and enslaved to sin, that people don't have worth and don't have value. I mean, even think about this. While we are under God's judgment and rightfully so because of what we've done, that doesn't mean that ultimately it it should move us to this very important thing, which is compassion, compassion. Because if people are in need of saving and they cannot save themselves, we who know that to be true should be the most compassionate people of all. When I got into the shore with my daughters and I watched as the lifeguards were bringing people in who they were rescuing from being crushed over on the jetty, you know what? I didn't sit there. See, see we all made the choice and the decision to go out in the water But I didn't sit there on the shore, and I don't think other people sat there on the shore watching the people being moved towards the jetty about to be crushed. And said, well, you know what? They made their bed. They might as well sleep in it. (laughs) No, you wanted to see those people saved and rescued. Yes, they had gone out into the water, and yes, that was a choice that they had made. But nonetheless, like, these are human beings. These people have worth and they have value. And so while we are judged by God and rightfully so, it doesn't cease to create within our heart and mind a reality that we should have compassion because unless somebody comes and saves those who need saving, they will experience an eternity of judgment for the sins that they have committed. If this doesn't move you towards compassion, then you don't truly understand that you were yourself in the same situation. Which leads us to the second thing. When you and I reflect as the people of God upon the fact that we needed saving and we couldn't save ourselves, it should move us towards humility as well. Humility. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All people need saving and cannot save themselves. That includes you and me. You see, there's a level playing field when it comes to our standing before God And there is not one person in this room who should view themselves as as better or more significant than any other person. Because the truth is, we are all perishing. You guys know that on an airplane, at least most of them, unless you're flying southwest, they have first class, they have business class, they have economy plus now, and then they have economy. You know, there's different classes on an airplane. When Han and I were coming back from our honeymoon, I've shared this story in the past, but I won't give the full story today. Um, There was a bomb scare that was on the plane, and they took the object that they thought was the bomb, and they moved it from the front of the plane to the back of the plane, which I've always thought was, you know, that's ingenious. Okay, great. It doesn't matter where it blows up because that actually makes my point. As we were on that plane and they were sharing with us, we had to do an emergency landing. As we were still 30,000 feet in the air, if that bomb exploded, it didn't matter if you were in first class, if you were in business class, if you were in economy, or if you were in coach or in the baggage compartment underneath, you're toast. And so you you can be like, well, at least I was in first class when the bomb exploded. No, it didn't matter. We're all perishing. And that's sometimes how we actually act how are we any better than anyone else, the end result of all of our lives is that we will perish apart from the salvation coming to us. Do you see how when you really understand how the Bible describes us, it should be be something that moves us towards compassion but creates within us a humility towards one another and towards the world. Because we're all in the same plane, if you will. And you might think, you know, some, this guy has more money than me, or this person has more money, or they, they're more successful. Or you might think, well, I have more money than them, and I have this degree or that degree, and so therefore I'm better than this person. No! No! The plane's going down for all of us. And we can't save ourselves, which means that if, if we are saved at all, It's not going to be because of anything that was good about us. And that's where we come now to what Jesus says about God in this passage. He says, listen to it once again, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. Through him. We just heard all about ourselves, but look at God. Look at what he is said to be and do in this passage. He loves the world, he cares for his creation, and so he gives his son. He sends his son. For what purpose, to what end does God act? God acts to save the perishing. That's what Jesus says. You want to know who our God is? You want to know what he's about? Jesus says you want to know why I came? It's because God is acting in and through Jesus Christ to ultimately save the lost, to save the perishing. Hallelujah for this. This is what our God does. He comes to those who need saving because they've rebelled against him. Because they have rejected him, those who cannot save themselves, the God that they have rebelled against, saves them through the work that he does on their behalf. This is what Jesus says, our God does. He doesn't stand far off, he comes near and he saves the perishing. Church, who is the God that we glorify? Oh, we proclaim him as the creator. We say he has all the power. He has all the glory. He's the one that we submit our lives to. But he also comes and reveals himself as this, the savior of sinners. Amen? This is who he says he is. The God that we glorify, the description that we have to have in our minds of him, we don't have to guess at it. We can know it clearly. Yes, he's the creator, but he's also the one who saves his creation and Jesus, while he only alludes to it here, Paul goes into greater detail in explaining like what it meant that God gave his son. I mean, think about if that's all that we had, John three sixteen, for God's love of the world, that he gave his son. He sent his son into the world to save it. Well, what, what, did, what did that mean? What did it mean for him to give his son? Did he like send Jesus to like mow the lawn or something? Did he, did he send him to, to fix a project? Like, like what does it mean for God to send and to give his son Paul says in Romans 5 this. This is what it means. For while we were still weak at the, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For those who have rebelled, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, even though perhaps for a good person, one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. When you and I read that God gave, that God sent Jesus, what we are being told here is that Jesus died in our place. In order for sinners to be saved, death had to take place. Punishment had to be leveled, but it was a punishment that now fell upon Christ. And not upon us. It's what we deserved, but Jesus got it in full. John, who records the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, would later write these words in 1 John chapter 4. In this is love. Again, for God so loved. John 4.9 9 says, In this is love. Was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world, Okay, there he is sending his son so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know that word propitiation, what it means is, it's very simply this, a, a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath and turns it into favor. This is what Jesus did in his coming. The father sent the son, which meant that the son would die as a sacrifice taking God's wrath upon himself so that you and I would not ever have to experience it. When we hear this, church, listen to me, listen to me. What we're being told here, that God is the savior of sinners, what is being revealed to us is that God is merciful. The God that we seek to glorify is a God of mercy. Church, we do not receive the punishment We do deserve. To call God the savior of sinners is to say that he is a God who does not give those who deserve punishment the punishment they deserve. Instead, he takes it upon himself. This past week, I heard a quote that gets at, I think, the the heart of some of these things. And this quote comes from a surprising source. Let me read the quote and let me tell you who said it. The person said, although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. There it is. We are a people who need saving. God sent, the person says, into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a savior with the power to forgive. Queen Elizabeth II in her Christmas address in 2011. Queen Elizabeth just passed away just this week. I can't speak to the internal condition of her soul, but I can proclaim what she proclaimed. She said Jesus wasn't just a philosopher. He wasn't just a general. She says humanity needs saving, and it's not going to come by military might, and it's not going to come through philosophy. But through a savior who has the power to forgive. We receive this mercy by not receiving the punishment we deserve. Continuing with the theme of monarchs, if you will, Napoleon Bonaparte, the emperor of France, the great general, one time a woman came to him and she said, Please spare my son's life. Napoleon said to the mother, He said, I. I cannot spare your son's life. He has committed this, you know, heinous crime. He's done it twice. He's stolen rations from other members of the military, putting their lives at risk. His crime demands justice, and the penalty in our military for his crime is death. And the mom came to Napoleon, and she said, but I don't ask for justice for my son. I plead for mercy. To which Napoleon said, but your son does not deserve mercy. To which she replied, Sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. Mercy is all I ask for. And he said, Well, then, I will have mercy. And he spared her son. We all need saving, we all deserve the righteous judgment of God. But when God sends his son to be our savior, he displays mercy but he doesn't just display mercy to us, church. He also comes and he shows us that he is a God of grace, that God is gracious. It's not just simply that we don't get what we do deserve. It's that we receive blessings that we do not deserve. Through the coming of the Savior, he doesn't just simply keep us from perishing, but if you listen and if you hear, it says plainly in the text That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. When I say that our God is gracious, it is on display in the fact that Jesus doesn't just save us from the wrath of God and keep us from eternal perishing. He gives us eternal life. And here's the beauty of what eternal life is. Here's what we so often miss about eternal life is that eternal life is not just simply living forever. It's not being on a cloud with a harp up in heaven, chilling with the saints of old. We get this picture that Jesus says, if you believe in me, you get to go to heaven one day. That's part of the equation. But that's not all of the equation because our God is not so simple to define life in only biological terms. We think about life as simply the opposite of of biological death, If death is ceasing to exist, then life is, well, to go on living. But think about the first time that death was ever talked about in the Bible. When Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate of it, God said, In the day that you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die. When they ate of that tree, did Adam and Eve cease to exist? Did they die physically on that day? The answer is, spoiler, no, they didn't. We're all here because they didn't. So we must understand that death isn't just simply ceasing to exist. It's not just purely this biological life that we understand it to be. There's more to it than that. Because what the Bible says life is You see, you want to know what eternal life is? It's living the life you were made to live. Because before Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and on that day died, they had perfect relationship with God. They had no corruption, physically or spiritually. They were walking in obedience. There was harmony in their relationship with one another and with the creation. But the moment that they ate of the fruit, Relationship with God was now broken. Enmity and strife existed not just between them and God, but between one another. Corruption and decay entered into our world. The ability to obey and to walk in harmony with God ceased being a reality. That's what death is. Not just physical death, but all of those things. Death is not having the life that you are made to live. They were shattered mirrors and we all have been the same ever since then. So when God comes and says, through Jesus Christ, not only are you not going to perish, but I'm going to give you eternal life. It's not just a promise of some far off day when you and I will be in heaven and in glory with God. It is partially that, but it is also that in here and now, you and I are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer bound by sin's power over us. We are able to actually approach the throne of God. We're able to come before Him and call upon Him as Father. We're able to walk in the fruit of the Spirit rather than in the flesh. Eternal life is something that Jesus purchased for you and I at the cross through His resurrection and is a reality here and today and not just some future date. That's why I say he's gracious. It's not just that he saves us from hell and then lets us be. It's that today, as the people of God, we bask in the reality and the glory and the goodness that we can sing songs of praise, and our God no longer has condemnation upon us, but he calls you his sons and his daughters. This is so beautiful. Peter said it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the reality. Now we have entered into a relationship. Now there's an inheritance that is ours. One day he goes on to say we will know it in its fullness, but it is something that we are entering into here. And now Galatians 4, 7 says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, Romans 8, 2 says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free today in Christ from the law of sin and death. This is eternal life. We exist to glorify God. Why? Because do you know who he is? He's the creator. He's the savior. He's incomparable, but he is gracious and merciful to each and every one of us if that doesn't stir our hearts to say, oh, I understand it. I understand why I center my life on him because outside of him there's only death, but in him there's eternal life. In him there's now therefore no condemnation. This is our God. This is what you and I get to carry with us out into the world even today. This is why we're a people who go and share with others Because we have the hope. We know why the world's broken and we know the only way that lives can be healed. Has your life been healed? Have you experienced eternal life through Jesus Christ? Are you no longer condemned? If that's your identity, if that's who you are, how can we live for anyone or anything other than him? You know, there was a story that's told. It was in a newspaper. It took place, I believe, in New York. Of a woman who was driving home after an event one day and as she was getting into her car and driving home from an event there was a man in a truck that was that pulled in right behind her as she pulled out of the parking lot as she pulled out of the parking lot she noticed that the truck kept following her and every time that she would accelerate the truck would accelerate and get closer to her and she would accelerate and the truck would accelerate and she felt very uncomfortable about the situation and the faster she went, the faster the truck went. She thought, this guy's stalking me. This guy is, is chasing after me. And so she came upon a gas station. And when she came into the gas station, she came ripping in into the gas station right by the convenience gas station door. And, and she hopped out. As she hopped out, the guy pulled in right away. He hopped out of the car. And he said, wait, wait, wait. And she says, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone. You're trying to get me. And he's like, no, stop, stop, no, no. Listen, I'm trying to save you. And at that moment, she looked back and a man got out of the back seat of her car. There had been someone who was there that was looking to kidnap and ultimately assault her. And the man in the truck had come up upon her when she was getting into her car, and he knew that she had not seen that there was somebody back there. You know, Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. <laughs> Some people hear the, the call of Christianity and the fact that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And and instead of recognizing what's actually happening, Jesus comes to us and says, listen, I'm not seeking to condemn you. You're in trouble as it is. I'm coming here to rescue and to save you. As this man saw her predicament, came to rescue and to save her. I wonder how do we respond to all of this? We should be running to Jesus each and every day because we know him to be the one who has entered in to save and to redeem, and because he has grace and mercy beyond measure has come to us. So do you know that grace and that mercy? If you do, then I pray that you would continue on this journey with me and with us as a church, as a people who live and exist to make much and to glorify him. And if you don't know of that grace and mercy, then today I pray that you'd hear the words of Jesus and you'd be able to say, I know that I stand condemned. I know that I'm a sinner unclean. And I know that I cannot save myself. And so, Jesus, I call upon you as you ask me to do. And I believe that you are the Savior who is sent to rescue and to redeem. Call upon him today. Know his grace, know his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, would you meet us by your Spirit's power? Meet us in the way in which the truths, as simple as they are proclaimed through your son Jesus Christ in John 3.16, would carry with us throughout the rest of this week. That knowing that the condition of our lives and the condition of the world apart from Jesus Christ is one in which we need saving and that we cannot save ourselves, Lord, would we be stirred to be compassionate and to be humble, one amongst each other, recognizing, Lord... That no matter what we have here or our experiences here on earth, we need a Savior who is Jesus Christ. And if we have come to believe in Christ today, Lord, help us to be a people that are so overwhelmed with the mercy you have shown and the grace that you have shown. That, Lord, we continually reorient our lives to not pursue or live for anything else, but to live only for you. And to make you known that as we gather, as we grow, as we give, as we go. We know that we do it because of who you are and what you have done. And so to you be the praise and the glory both now and forever in the lips of your people we ask through Christ your Savior. Amen and amen.